Good morning. How are you all doing today? Awesome. Uh, I know many of you have asked already, but I am feeling great. Thank you so much for the prayers. I got to tell it because it's probably the cheesiest dad joke I could think of, but you know, after teaching the four horsemen, it was the fourth one of plague and death that got me, took me out. All right, some laughs, some laughs. All right, cool. All right. I am Pastor Nathan, and I want to start by welcoming anybody that is here joining us in our sanctuary for the first time, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. This morning, we are going to be continuing our study through Revelation by looking at the fifth and sixth seals in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. Um, But we're also here in a day that is recognizing Memorial Day. And in our text today, we're going to see a group of people who gave their lives for the cause. And Memorial Day is a time where we take a moment to reflect and to honor those who gave their lives for the cause and gave their lives in defense of this country and our freedoms. And so I do want to take a moment just to say thank you to those who have family members that they have lost, those that have given their their lives the ultimate price. My dad Um, ultimately passed from complications that he got in his service, and so um, we do appreciate those who gave that ultimate sacrifice for us. But we're also gathered, yeah, you could clap for that, absolutely. We're also gathered here on Pentecost Sunday, which is today, and Pentecost is that day we see in Scripture, at least in the New Testament church, where all of the um, believers were gathered together in one accord uh, 50 days after his resurrection, and we know that Pentecost was that day where the promised comforter, the Holy Spirit, came upon the apostles, empowering them filling them with the Holy Spirit to, to accomplish their calling and their mission to be lights to the world. And so as we study through Revelation, because we're in a piece of Revelation where I'm like, how do I, how do I shoehorn Pentecost into, into the particular text we're in? And it's a little bit awkward, but the overall idea here is as we're studying Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ. The goal and the point of all of this is that we would be people full of the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel, telling people about the hope, the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And then a part of that is warning them of judgment to come on sin, that the, the judgment that's gonna fall in this world. And so I just pray today that the Holy Spirit would fill all of us as we're here to hear his word and to study his word together. But I have mentioned a number of times, and I will likely mention this many more times before we conclude Revelation. Um, I fully understand that there are numerous ways people interpret this book. Most Christians agree on two things regarding the end times in the future, I think, and one of those is that the Old Testament and Jesus himself promised that there would be a coming messianic rule on earth. The second thing most Christians agree on is that Jesus Christ is indeed coming again at some point, right? But past those two points, there's lots of disagreement regarding the the when, the how, and really the meaning, the interpretive meaning of the things we study here in Revelation. And I probably should have spent more time on this as we entered into uh, the study of Revelation, but I just want to give just a brief overview to to kind of set the context of how we're approaching Revelation as we study through it, because Revelation has historically been interpreted in four major ways. There's, there's other variances and nuances of interpretation, but there's four major ways that Revelation has been approached through. And the first one um, is the preterist view. 
And those that identify with the preterist view of Revelation um, hold the belief that none of Revelation is prophecy. None of it is prophecy, but it is all a symbolic retelling of what um, happened in the first century. It's a symbolic retelling of first century conflicts that have already happened. And so in the preterist view, um, all biblical prophecy concerning end times really has already been fulfilled in the past. And so some people approach Revelation from that point of view. The second major view that Revelation has often been interpreted throughout the years is the historicism view, which was once very, very popular, but actually today there's almost nobody that holds this view of Revelation, but the historicism view says Revelation is a symbolic telling of history, the history of the church from the beginning of the church until now. The problem with the historicism view is now was a moving target, right? (laughs) Because 100 years ago, now was now, and then it became then, right? And so the problem with this interpretation of Revelation was that every generation would interpret the happenings of the world around them and then look into Revelation and try and connect things. But the problem was is life moved on and technology moved on. And so it was a difficult thing. The third one is the idealism view, which is the idea that all of Revelation is only purely and specifically symbolic of the general struggle between good and evil but none of it is prophetic, none of it is historic, nor does it have any connection to any real times or events, past or present. And then the fourth major view of Revelation is the futurist view. And the futurist view says that Revelation does indeed speak of actual, real, literal future events prophetically. Now in that, you have three then major views of what is known as the millennial kingdom of Christ, right, which Revelation speaks of. You have people that are post-millennial, which say, you know, there is no literal physical reign of Jesus for a thousand years. It's not a literal thing. And these people tend to fall in the preterist interpretation of Revelation. People that are post-millennial often say the world eventually will become a predominantly Christian um, uh, global government type of thing. And so they consider this, this golden age of human existence, the coming millennium. They don't interpret a thousand years as a literal thousand years, but instead they say that this time of a Christian-dominated culture globally may or may not be a thousand years, and they kind of look at thousand years as meaning just a long time. Then you have people that are all millennial. Oh, I'm sorry, post-millennials then believe that Christ will return at the end of this golden age to quash a final rebellion. People identify as all millennials, say there, there is no literal thousand years or a thousand year reign, period. And these people tend to identify as the idealism interpretive, uh, uh, interpreters of Revelation. All millennials believe that we currently today are living in the millennial reign of Christ. This um, thousand year reign that, that Revelation talks about, but they also say that thousand years is simply a metaphorical way to say a long time. And so all millennials believe that Christ reigns as king in the hearts of his people, and that's how Christ will reign during the millennial period. He's not here physically, but he reigns in the heart of his people, and he won't visibly return until the new heaven and the new earth comes. And then you have premillennial people, which tend to identify with a futurist interpretation of Revelation, which believes that Christ will physically return in the future to establish a literal 1,000 years of him reigning here on earth. And then with that, to make it even more clear, you have four major views on the timing of the rapture of the church, right? You have pre-tribulational understanding which believes that the redeemed, the church, will be raptured or taken up out of the earth prior to God's final judgment in the tribulation time. 
You have people that identify as mid-tribulation, which believes that the redeemed will be raptured up out of the earth at the halfway point in tribulation, three and a half years into it. You have pre-wrath people who believe that the redeemed will be raptured up out of the earth sometimes after the midpoint. So you might call these, instead of mid-tribulation, two-third tribulationists because they believe it's kind of after that midpoint. And then you have post-tribulation belief, which is that the church, the redeemed, will be raptured up at the very end of tribulation and then immediately boomerang back as they return to the earth with Christ for the, uh, um, the end of tribulation. I share all that to say this. Since much of this hasn't happened yet, I don't believe anybody can be 100% sure. Nobody can be 100% sure. Um, personally, I think it's arrogant to claim so. Um, if you spend some time on YouTube, you'll find many on all sides of the interpretive debates of Revelation saying, I am right, the rest are wrong. You'll even find videos where some even say, you can't be saved unless you believe in a post-tribulation rapture, which I was like, can you show me where in the gospel <laughs> it requires you to believe in any particular interpretive, um, revelational interpretation? Now, the real big issue is when there's opposing, contradicting viewpoints on things that haven't happened yet, and all of those contradictory viewpoints claim to be 100% right, the truth is, is that somebody is wrong. Somebody is wrong, right? Um, but interpretations on these things um, are, are difficult. Now, I do lean as a, as a futurist, premillennial, pre-tribulation interpretation of Revelation. That's how I lean. That is my understanding in my studies of Revelation. But I saw um, one other teacher said it this way, that he's pan-millennial and pan-tribulational. And he said, because we'll know when it all pans out. And that's kind of more, I guess, how my heart lines up with these things. But the interpretation of these, 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 these things, these end-time events, the tribulation, the rapture, all that, they are not salvational doctrines, okay? They are not things like who Jesus is, how we are saved, how we're going to get to heaven, but rather they're issues and factors of when these things might take place and what the final judgments of God might look like, and so we shouldn't divide over these things. We shouldn't divide over these things. We shouldn't be claiming that those who interpret these as-of-yet-to-happen events differently than us are somehow um, um, apostate or unbiblical, or dangerous. I, I believe that is a wrong way to, to deal with people who, who interpret these things differently, but rather we should be able to discuss all of these things with mutual respect, with love, because we're family in Christ. And so, to those of you who are emailing me and sending me messages, and kindly, uh, gracefully, that, that it has been done, um, those who disagree with my interpretation of these things, I love you, I respect you, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, as I continue to study the book of Revelation, I think I understand why you believe differently than I do about these things. I just don't agree with you. That's it. I just don't agree with you. And I'll add that at least at this time because as I study and as these things unfold, I may come to a different understanding. But I just simply don't agree with you. That is all. I don't hate you. I'm not leading Hosanna into the pits of hell. Okay? Um... But as the pastor of this church, I am and will be teaching this book from a futurist, premillennial, pre-tribulation view. Okay, that's how we're gonna be approaching the teaching in the, of this book. And whether you agree or not, I think we both can agree that according to chapter one of Revelation, we are all blessed by the reading of the book of this prophecy. 
And so I pray that you would be blessed with that. I will try and address differences in interpretation as we move forward and as time allows, but my prayer is that all of us, regardless of our stance of these things that haven't happened yet, regardless of our stance on that, we would all be motivated to preach the gospel today. We would all be motivated to go and tell people about Jesus today, to see people get saved today, so that whenever, however the rapture happens, they'll be there for it. And whenever, however, the millennial kingdom of Christ comes to to be, that they would be there for that. And whenever you think the second coming of Christ is, that they would be ready for it as a saved child of God. That is the point. That is the goal. But more than anything, that we would have a clear vision of living for Jesus Christ in our lives today. Okay? All right. (laughs) So this morning, with the fifth and sixth seal, we're going to be looking at those who suffered the wrath of man giving their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ, contrasted with those who suffered the wrath of God for their rejection of him. That's what we're going to be looking at in the fifth and sixth seal this morning, and we will be looking at these things from a futurist, premillennial, pre-tribulational perspective. And again, if you just say, I think that is completely wrong, then approach it like we're in a college class doing a survey of all of them, and we just happen to be surveying the pre-tribulation view, okay? But with that, let's pray, and then we'll get into some worship. Father, We love you. God, we do thank you, Lord, that even in the body of Christ, Lord, when we come to issues that that are um, tough to, to reconcile, Lord, where we come to issues and differences of interpretation of prophecy and future events, Lord, that God, through the spirit of Christ that fills us, that indwells us, Lord, we are still able to come together to love one another as brothers and sisters in the body. Lord God, your word is very clear about the things we can't differentiate in on, Lord, the things about who you are, who Jesus is, God in the flesh. Lord, about how we are saved, where it's not on our works, it's not on what we do, but it is purely through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in that work. That God, it's those things that draw us together, it's those things we don't waver on, Lord, but there's other things that we should be able to have discussion about, to speculate about, to to get into the word and to see what what says what and why? But Lord, most importantly, I pray, God, that in our world today, that, Lord, your Spirit would work in us to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, empowered to go out and do the work you're calling us to do. Lord, not all of us are evangelists, but we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. And may we be people who take every opportunity, Lord, to share our faith, to share the hope of Jesus Christ with those that don't know you that are in the world today. That God, regardless of what's to come into the future and the timing and the chronology of all of it, Lord, that they would be saved, that their eternity would be secure. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you would encourage us and motivate us, Lord. And specifically today, as we look at what's possibly to come for those who come to know you during the time of your wrath, Lord, God, that we would be encouraged to, to, to share now that people would be spared from the wrath to come. But Lord, we want to worship your name because this entire study is about knowing you better, is about knowing you more, is about proclaiming the glory of who you are, God. And so be praised. Be blessed, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We got a lot of ground to cover, so if I end up talking fast, I apologize in advance, all right? But we are in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9. And it says, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, 
the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. You know, at this point in Revelation, we've looked at the first two parts of the divine outline given in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And if you remember what it told us there, as Jesus was speaking to John, he says, therefore, write what you have seen, which is chapter 1, the revelation, the picture of Jesus Christ glorified. And then he said, write what is, which is the church age that we looked at through chapters 2 and 3. And then he said, write what will take place after this. And so that three-part outline, I believe, gives us a picture of what Revelation looks like and that what takes place after this began in chapter 4 on. And so what we've seen so far in this book is the churches throughout the ages addressed by Jesus one at a time to deal with the issues that they have during their existence here on earth. And then we saw, according to a pre-tribulation understanding of Revelation, the church the body of believers that exist today prior to the judgment of God falling out on earth, represented by John, caught up into heaven. As God said, come up here. We also saw as John was caught up into heaven, he saw the 24 elders present, which represent the entire body of Christ, the entire body of the redeemed that are there in heaven with John prior to tribulation falling upon the earth. And we saw that group of people all together worshiping God, casting their crowns down at the feet of God, praising him specifically for the salvation that was granted to them through the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we saw that the Lamb of God stepped forward to take a hold of the scroll, having, paid the, having fully paid the price of redemption for everything, all of creation, redeeming everything from the curse that came upon it through sin, and now the deal done, the transaction complete, the time has come for him to then reclaim what he has reclaimed in that scroll or what he has ownership of. And so the time of long-suffering grace, which is the church age, has ended, and the time of judgment and tribulation has come. And so as he begins to break these seals, and that'll move into the trumpets and the bull judgments, we see that there is a purge of wickedness from the earth that begins called the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period referenced prophetically by Daniel where God will pour out his wrath on sin. He will pour out his wrath on those who reject him. He will pour out his wrath on a sinful world. And so that all started here in chapter six with the breaking of the first four seals, which we looked at as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you had that first seal, which was the white horse of deception and false peace. Now there's numerous different um, understandings of this. Some people think that first horse is Jesus. Uh, others believe that it's Elijah. And there are some reasons, and in good reasons, people interpret it that way. However, I do believe that it's a picture of the Antichrist released upon the earth to start to bring his um, deception upon the nations. And so as God allows the Antichrist to step in to deceive the nations and to conquer initially through an apparent peace, he effectively is the picture of God finally giving the world what it wants, which is anything but God to rule over them. And then that led to the red horse of war as this false Christ, this counterfeit Jesus, this antichrist plunges the entire world into warfare and bloodshed. And we saw how that led to the black horse of famine, which was scarcity and the result of war. And then ultimately the pale horse of sickness, disease, and death. 
Now these first four seals represented by these four horses are both a chronological and, and kind of an overview picture of what's going to take place through the enti- throughout the entirety of tribulation. But an important detail, I think, specifically coming from uh, the, the, the interpretation as I understand it, is that all of this is observed by John and the church, represented by the 24 elders, from heaven. For they have already been caught up into heaven, because 1 Thessalonians 5.9, where Paul was speaking of the tribulation to come, he said, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, we see that this fifth seal is opened. And it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had been given. So as John is in heaven observing the unfolding of these events, watching the Lamb of God break these seals on the scroll that he then purchased or he had purchased and seeing these four horsemen go out and just stampede across the earth, he now looks and sees a specific group of people in heaven where he is at. Now the natural question is who are these people, right? Well, it gives us some clues in the description there um, because it tells us that they're under the altar having been slaughtered for their testimony, and slaughtered because of the word of God. Now, um, off the cuff on just the, the, the general looking at the scripture there, this could be representative of, of those from all time, all human history, who have been killed because of their faith in Christ. We get that because that word testimony there, it says that they were slaughtered for the word of God and the testimony that they had given. That word testimony in the Greek is martyria. We get our English word martyr from this word. And so this word testimony is, 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 is about, um, it's the idea of speaking with direct knowledge about something in a way that results in death. So the testimony, it's speaking, it's a witness, being a witness of something and speaking about it in such a way where you get killed for it, all right? And that's why this word martyr in the Greek is rendered testimony here because it's talking about having a witness that ends up in death. So these people are, are martyrs for their faith, and it could be just people from all time, but there's another possibility that falls in line with a pre-tribulational rapture and a futurist interpretation of Revelation. Um, because if you hold to, or if you see, or at least acknowledge a pre-tribulational rapture perspective, that naturally raises some questions in your mind as you're interpreting this book of Revelation. And one of those questions is if the Christians and the church collectively are gone from the earth during tribulation, can people still get saved? And if people can still get saved during this time, what happens when they do? Well, the answer to the first question, um, it is my belief that yes, absolutely, they still can. People still can get saved during tribulation even though the church and the Christians are gone. Um, They missed the opportunity to do so during the age of grace, but yes, salvation is still available during the tribulation period. Now, you might say, but wait, Pastor Nathan, didn't you just quote 1 Thessalonians 5.9? Didn't you just quote to us that verse that says, God did not appoint his children to wrath? And this is one of the critiques of a pre-tribulational understanding of Revelation. But if you go to 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and you look at that word appoint, where it says God did not appoint his children to wrath, that word in the Greek is tithemi. It means to consign someone to something. The idea is to cause or to make to be, or to make to experience something. That's what that word appoint means. 
So when we read 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and we say God did not appoint his children to wrath, the idea there is God will never cause us, make us, consign us to go through his wrath. That's what the word says there. But that doesn't preclude us from choosing to do so. That doesn't preclude us from choosing to deny him now before tribulation comes and then to be suffering through that time where he's pouring out his wrath on sin on the world to then in that time be able to find ourselves crying out to God. Tribulation um, does not preclude the opportunity for someone to be saved. And so when we say God did not appoint us to wrath, he doesn't make us go through his wrath. He doesn't cause us to go through his wrath is the idea. So with that understanding, these people that are under the altar here represented by this fifth seal could be what is known as tribulation saints. This is one of the understandings of who these people could be, people who were saved during the tribulation period. And the idea comes from the, the chronological understanding of these seals. You see, it's my understanding that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are 21 chronologically building judgments upon the earth. Now, there is some overlap, and there are some that represent kind of an overview of things, but I believe there's a building um, intensity in the judgments of God on the earth during the tribulation period. And that is because a part, a part of his judgment on earth during the tribulation period is to wake man up, is to wake us up and say, listen, like, you need to be saved. God is real, and God is judging sin and call out to him. And so these judgments get worse and worse and worse as the time period goes on. Now, others interpret that as these seven uh, seals and seven bowls and seven trumpets. They're just a retelling of the same seven things. That is another interpretation of Revelation. Um, but chronologically, we see these four, first four seals already opened. So the tribulation has already begun. The tribulation is, is started, and then we come to this fifth seal. So it's after these four, first four uh, seals are opened, we come to these saints that are under the altar. Now, this interpretation sees that, that during the tribulation, with the church being gone and the Christians raptured out prior to the tribulation falling, that a new generation of believers will, will rise up on earth during this time. And these are people who will end up not believing the lies of the Antichrist. They will end up not believing in what the one world government and all that is saying at the time, although they are living in a time where the entire earth is under direct control and influence of the Antichrist. And so as these judgments that God is levying out against a sinful world fall, some will indeed end up crying out to God for salvation. God, please save us. And you might think, well, how does the gospel go out? If the church is gone, if the Christians are gone, how is the gospel going to go out during this time? Well, there's many ways that, that the gospel goes out during tribulation. In chapter 7, which we're going to be looking at next, uh, chapter 7 is like a parenthetical between the sixth and seven seals, right? It's kind of like, like, a, like meanwhile, you know, as, as the movie does, you know? And so in chapter 7, it tells us about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will preach the gospel. Now, I know some somewhere are going to be disappointed because these are not the Jehovah's Witnesses who are sealed and the only ones going to heaven. Right? These are Jewish evangelists, and so they're preaching the gospel during the tribulation period. In chapter 11, we're going to read about two specific witnesses who gain a worldwide audience preaching the gospel. 
In chapter 14, we read about an angel, it says, tasked with, quote, announcing the eternal gospel to every person on earth. And so the gospel is going out during this tribulation period. And then on top of that, even with the church being gone, the church having been raptured out, the testimony that you and I have as Christians here today will remain. I mean, we're going to be gone, but our Bibles are still going to be here. So if you're a note taker, <laughs> if you're jotting stuff down in your Bible, that, that's a testimony of your walk with God and your understanding, your growth with Him. Christian books will still be around, at least for a time. Christian magazines, Christian websites, YouTube channels, right? All that's still going to be out there for a time while the church is gone. One of the things we've done here at Hosanna, Pastor Gary did this years and years ago, is in the back of the church there, we have the at-home ministry room. And in that room is a little like treasure chest looking, looking thing on the ground there. That's actually what we call our rapture box. And so the idea is that, that when the church is raptured, we're taken out and people are starting to wander into our building going, where did all these Christians go? Where did Hosanna? That they might find this box to crack open. And guess what's inside that box? Your testimonies. And if you've never taken the time to write down your testimony of what God has done and who he is and write it down for someone who doesn't know the Lord who might be asking questions when we're gone, write it, put it in an envelope, and go drop it in the box because that's what it's there for. And so the idea is that the gospel is still going to go out. It's still going to be um, a prevalent during this time. But these martyrs that are under the altar here in Revelation 6, they're apparently different than the 24 elders who represent the church in heaven. The 24 elders, it says, are already in heaven seated around the throne of God prior to any of the seals being opened. They were already there. But these ones are appearing on the fifth seal under the altar, and it's specifically pointed out that they are under the altar having been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had given. And this happens after the tribulation starts is an important detail to me. They weren't Christians who just died of natural causes. They weren't um, uh, believers who died in some, some car accident or anything like that. It specifically tells us that they were slaughtered. That word slaughtered doesn't mean just killed. It means targeted. It means someone who was targeted and killed mercilessly with great prejudice, hate, and anger. So there, there's a specific group of people after the tribulation started that had been targeted for what? The word of God and the testimony they had given about it. So the picture is that after the church was gone, they had gotten saved somehow, come to faith, began to share that faith and preach that faith, and they were then targeted for that and killed. This idea of being under the altar, it's a picture we get from the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, when the priest would kill the sacrificial animal, there was an altar where the blood would be poured out, and the blood would be poured out at the base of the altar, under the altar. And that blood being at the base of the altar was a picture of the sacrifice that was poured out there. And so these saints being under the altar, the idea is that their very lives, their very blood, was poured out for the for the cause of Christ. They were a sacrifice for the cause of Christ during this tribulation period. And so I see these saints as a different group of people than the church, right? We're called the saints today, right? So, so some people see a confusion there, but there's a difference, I believe, I see it in Revelation between the church and these particular saints under the fifth seal. A couple of the reasons for that is Revelation tells us that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist 
is allowed to make war against the saints, and it tells us that he prevails against them, which we see these martyrs here that were slaughtered for their faith. But before this time period, back in the Gospels, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the idea is that God's people aren't going to be um, just wholesale slaughtered during this age of grace. Now, yes, martyrdom does happen now, but it's going to be taking place in a far different way during the tribulation period. If these people under the fifth seal aren't the church, because the church is not on the earth during tribulation period, but instead people who get saved after the tribulation started, people who then are falling to the forces of hell, so to speak, then it makes sense. But again, I do acknowledge that martyrdom is not a future-only concept, right? Martyrdom does happen today. People die every day for their belief in Jesus Christ. But those who come to Christ during the tribulation period are going to face a time of persecution never seen on earth. Persecution on Christians for being Christian, it's something that has been growing in the world today for centuries, and it is still growing today, especially in the United States. Right, believers in the United States, Christians and Christianity is more and more seen as, as an enemy of the state. We're the bigots, we're the narrow-minded, we're the hateful, we're the intolerant. You know, in our culture today, it's okay to be spiritual, just not Christian with a strict biblical worldview. <laughs> be spiritual all you want, just not Jesus. Just not, he's the only way for salvation. Don't, don't you dare say that. And, and, and the persecution against those who believe in, in Christianity, it's getting worse. According to the Institute of Religion and Democracy in Washington, D.C., there's been more martyrs in the 20th century than in every other century combined since the time of Christ. Between 1950 and 2010, it's estimated that 70 million believers were persecuted or put to death simply because they believe in Jesus. And you might think, that's terrible. But the picture, and it is, but the picture is that during the tribulation period, the persecution will be much worse because it's going to be overtly, publicly, aggressively prevalent. It's going to be government-supported and mandated. It's not going to be just in third-world countries. It's going to be in every country as people have turned to see Christians as the problem for everything. And they will be aggressively targeted it won't just be you're losing your business. It won't just be you can't make cake. It won't be just you can't have a flower shop. It'll be you can't even exist. And we see this picture here in Revelation. Now, verse 10, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? This is another reason why I don't believe these people represent the church, but rather a different group of believers, because in the age of grace, in the age we currently live in, the church age that we ex uh, currently exist in, believers are told to pray for those who persecute you. We are told to love them, to turn the extra cheek, to give them your cloak, to go the extra mile, right? Those who persecute us for our faith, we are commanded in this age to love them and pray for them and, 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 and interact with them that way. But these particular believers who likely died during this age of vengeance and wrath, they're not praying for them. They're saying, God, when are you gonna take them out? God, when are you gonna harm them? When are you gonna judge those who murdered me? That word avenge there, when are you gonna avenge those, uh, avenge our blood, that word avenge literally means when are you going to give them what they deserve? 
And it's a different attitude than what we're called to with those who persecute us here in the age of grace. Now, verse 11, it says, so they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So there's already the notice there that there's going to be more of these martyrs during this time. Now, a white robe, the white robe that they were given, we've seen throughout Scripture and in Revelation specifically that the white robe often represents the righteousness as we are clothed with in Christ. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, right? It's a picture or a reminder of their salvation being secure, right? We're under the altar here. We've been killed for our faith mercilessly, I mean, brutally. When are they going to get what's coming to them? When are you going to take them out? And the first thing he does is give them this white robe, like, look, your salvation is secure. You're saved. You're safe. But then he goes on to say, look, judgment is coming, is coming right? There's more of you that, that have to go through this before the end of all this. It is coming. It is happening as you speak, and be patient. Just be patient is what he tells them. But it's an interesting contrast, this first section, this fifth seal, to what then takes place under the sixth seal, which we're going to look at next, because what we have here is the martyrs in heaven crying out, avenge us, God. Avenge us. But then that's contrasted with mankind on earth who is still experiencing these judgments, crying out to the mountains for salvation. <laughs> not crying out to God, not looking to God as almighty, but instead crying out to creation. And we see that in the opening of the sixth seal. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being up, rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Pretty horrific description of, of what's taking place here on earth, right? But it's interesting because you have the creator of the earth, the creator of the sun, the creator of the moon, the creator of sky, the creator of space, the creator of the stars now literally begins to shake things up on earth. To shake it free of all the filthy corruption that, that clings to it, right? He gives that idea of the, the figs falling from a tree as it's shaken by the wind. Now, as the sixth seal is opened, it opens there with an earthquake, right? This is the first of three major earthquakes we read about in Revelation. And we know, or maybe you don't know, but earthquakes ha have been increasing in intensity over the last hundred years. There are more earthquakes today worldwide than there were a hundred years ago. It's getting worse. It's ramping up, if you will, to something. I remember the Northridge, Northridge earthquake when I was in seventh grade, right? We were getting ready in our morning, and then all of a sudden, um, us and all of our desks went up. And then all of us and our desks went down. And then the teacher said, get under the desk. <laughs> what was that going to do? <laughs> I never quite understood that. You know, I get fallen stuff. But anyways, it was a big earthquake. You know, and there's been many more earthquakes. And people have been asking for years, when's the big one, right? When's the big one coming, the big one that's going to level everything? And well, you know, I think it's during tribulation. <laughs> that's when the big one's going to come. That's when it's not just going to be localized, but it's going to be worldwide. It says a violent earthquake. That word violent specifically means surprisingly remarkable in magnitude. 
it's going to be an earthquake where everybody's like, wow, that one was a big earthquake, right? It's going to be surprisingly remarkable. And so this earthquake is going to happen, shaking up the earth, and then it says the sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair, and the moon became like blood. And so again, John is, is recording what he is being shown here from heaven about what is taking place down on earth in the creation, the physical creation of reality. And so the, the, the sun turning black like sackcloth, you know, the idea is that it's just not shining anymore. It's like almost an eclipse, if you will, but it's just completely black. And the moon becoming like blood is the idea of the moon turning from its shining the sun to this red kind of opaque look. But this, this idea has been foretold several times in Scripture as something that would happen during the end times. In Joel chapter 2, verse 31, he said, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, some of you here or maybe watching online or watching this later are going to be like, aha, Pastor Nathan, didn't you pay attention to that? It said before the great and terrible day of the Lord. How is the sun and moon, how is this taking place during the tribulation period if it's before? Good observation. Great observation. But if you go and you study the Hebrew, that word before there means in the presence or in the face of. It's like saying, I stand before you. It's not a reference to time. It's not a reference to chronology. It's a positional reference. It's like saying the sun turns to darkness and the moon turns to blood in the presence of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's a picture, again, a prophecy of what is happening during tribulation. Again, in Joel chapter 3, verse 15, it says, The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake. Earthquakes. And then again in Isaiah 13, verse 9, it says, Look, the day of the Lord is coming. And I've mentioned a few times in past studies that the idea of the day of the Lord, that word day, is referring to a time period. It's not necessarily only referring to a 24-hour period, but it's referring to the time, uh, a time period, which I believe is the whole um, tribulation time. So the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and to what? Destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil. So what is exactly happening to cause the sun to go dark and the moon to become like blood? Um, what is exactly happening to cause those things? It's, it's speculative. We don't know, right? Um, some go it's going to be some type of atmospheric conditions. Some think there's going to be a prolonged eclipse during this time. Some have even speculated, no, there's a hydrogen explosion, which changes the way things look in the sky. Others speculate that, that during this tribulation period, especially following the, the violence of the Red Horse of War, that there might be nuclear detonations on our Earth, and so the, the consequences of a nuclear nuclear winter might be, you know, causing issue, atmospheric issues. Ultimately, we don't know. Um, but in verse 13, he says, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs. <laughs> that was cool timing though, right? <laughs> right? I was, I was about to be like, hey, props lighting people. That, that, was pretty, that was pretty good timing there. The stars fell. Okay. So, 
The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. So the stars falling from heaven um, could be meteors, uh, the idea of meteors um, hitting the earth, you know, because one, I mean, even in recent history, we have near misses all the time, right, which it's funny when you're looking in the scope of space and they go, oh my gosh, we had a near miss. Really, how close was it? Like a billion miles away. I guess in the context of space, that's close, right? But, um, you know, the idea of, of, of this could be, these stars from heaven falling could be meteors is because when we see a meteor streaking across the sky, what do we call it? A shooting star, right? It's the idea of these glimmering lights in the sky. And so, um, but, you know, historically, you know, in the last 100 years or so, 130 years, there's only been really a couple large meteors um, strike the earth. And even in that, nothing's actually hit the earth. They've just been a couple that entered the atmosphere, which could be precursors of what it's talking about here. In 1908, there was an event called the Tunguska event. And it was actually a meteor that entered the atmosphere in a remote part of Siberia in Russia. Now, this meteor is thought to have been about 120 feet across. So you think from the stage to the back of the foyer is, is the, the diameter of this meteor. Um, they estimate it to be about around 220 million pounds. But in this event, this meteor entered the atmosphere and exploded in the air just a few miles up from ground level. The force of this explosion leveled trees for hundreds of miles in every direction, and it killed hundreds and hundreds of reindeer. And that's why all the Christmas presents were late that year, right? Um, no. <laughs> but in 2013, most recently, um, there was another meteor over Russia, which I don't know what it is about Russia, but, you know, um, there was a meteor that was, that was estimated to be the size of a, like a, um, a, a, a median income family home, right? So maybe like a, a 15 to 2,000 square foot uh, type of place, type of, type of house was the idea of this. And it entered the atmosphere traveling 11 miles per second. And it blew apart 14 miles above the ground. So it didn't actually strike. But the force of the explosion released energy equivalent to 440,000 tons of dynamite. The shockwave blew out window, windows and damaged buildings in a 200 square mile area. Okay, to give you an idea of that, from here to Las Vegas is 200 miles. So now go 200 miles up, 200 miles across, 200 miles back. Windows and buildings damaged from the explosion of this meteor breaking up. And that was just one meteor, one. So when we read things like every mountain and island moved from its place, you could start to imagine the, the possibility of this if the Earth was struck by multiple meteors as the results of tectonic movement and the impacts of these meteors worldwide would cause a great upheaval in, in the Earth itself. Now, the whole concept here of the sky being split apart like a scroll, no idea. I don't know. <laughs> so um, I was trying to you know, get an idea of some of the interpretive elements of this, and uh, nobody really has a good understanding of that. So something is going to happen in the sky where the sky is going to pull apart in some catastrophic event um, as a part of this. But I don't know exactly what that is, so I'm not going to elaborate. But we might imagine that experiencing and observing these types of catastrophes would cause everybody to repent, right? Meteors striking the earth. Skies splitting open mountains being moved, you know, all this stuff having meteors falling. I mean, you, you would think people would somewhere go, hey, I heard of a book somewhere that talks about these things happening, and oh my gosh, right? You would think people would just repent everywhere, but no. 
Some will. But for most, a stubborn callousness will still remain. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and every free person. So everybody, like a whole mix of all people hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? As I've mentioned a couple times that, um, you know, this is all the judgment of God on sin and all the world, but, but through all of this tribulation, all of this judgment being poured out, God intends these, these judgments to shake mankind awake, to, to wake them up so that they would call out to him for salvation, but most still refuse. Instead of calling out to God for salvation, we see them there calling out to the gods of their own making, specifically the mountains and the rocks. The idea, the picture is that instead of calling out to Almighty God, they're calling out to the creation. Instead of calling out to the creator, they're calling out to the creation that's around them, saying, rocks, mountains, please hide us. And as Revelation goes on, and as these judgments get more uh, intense and progressively more intense, we see mankind just hardening its heart more and more and more. And that hardening is deliberate. That hardening is on purpose. It's outright rebellion. It's a refusal to repent, a refusal to accept God. And that's one of the most insidious effects of sin. Now, the reason I think they're hardening their hearts and stuff, um, and the reason I think this is a deliberate and on purpose outright rebellion against God, because look at what it says there. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The sixth seal shows us that they know who is behind these judgments. They know who is behind these judgments. They recognize that what is taking place on the earth is, is, is the result of God the Father, the one seated on the throne, and God the Son, the Lamb who is slain. They recognize who is judging the world, and yet they still, not, they still won't repent. Now, I want to take a look at verse 17 and close on this real quick. Because in verse 17, it says they're calling out. And it says, because the great day of their wrath has come. And this is just a, a small point, and, and I welcome... Uh, different views on this and stuff, but for my, for my pre-wrath and mid-trib and post-trib friends, again, who I have the greatest respect and love for as family, um, a lot of times in the conversations of, of those particular interpretations, I see that, that there's an attempt to reconcile 1 Thessalonians 5.9, which says we are not appointed to wrath. They try and um, reconcile that against a pre-trib uh, interpretation of the rapture of the church by saying God's wrath isn't until the bold judgments. And that's one of the common interpretations of a mid-trib or a pre-wrath interpretation of um, tribulation and the rapture of the church. They say, well, yeah, First Thessalonians says we're not appointed to the wrath, but the wrath isn't until the second half of the tribulation. The wrath isn't until uh, two-thirds of the way into the tribulation. And, and even some go so far as to say, well, you know, everything before the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, those are actually Satan's wrath. It's Satan pouring out his wrath on, on, on earth and mankind and all that. Um, but I have a problem with that because, again, let's read verse 17, which is the sixth seal. Long before the bold judgments, the people on the earth say the great day of their wrath has come. Not is coming, not will come, 
but has come. And it says the great day of their wrath. Whose wrath? God on the throne and the Lamb. Not Satan. In the sixth seal, the people on earth acknowledge that the wrath of God has come, is here, has arrived. And when has it come? Here at the beginning of tribulation, not the end, not the halfway point, not the two-third point. And this is part of why I believe that the entire seven-year tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb. The entire seven-year tribulation is the wrath of God on earth, not just the second half, not just the last third, but the entire seven years. And it's just, I see it very plainly right there in Scripture. And it's many of the, one of the many reasons why when I read 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and I see that God has not appointed us to wrath, I believe that that means that we are then raptured out and taken before the seven-year period of tribulation, which is the wrath of God. And so I am pretty confident in saying that God did not and will not consign and appoint cause to be or make his church, which is the saved before tribulation, go through his wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, which is the entire seven-year period of tribulation. Now, on the other hand, some just struggle plainly with the concept of God's wrath altogether, right? Some are like, how could a God of love, a God who is love, possibly do this to the earth? How could a God who is love manifest possibly do this to the people on the earth? How could he do that? Well, we have to understand that God is holy. God is holy. He is perfectly holy, and we have to recognize that his response to sin, which is the antithesis of his holiness, is wrath. His perfect holiness responds to sin with wrath. It wants to eradicate it. It wants to do away with it. It wants to kill it completely. It's a part of God's nature. Sin and what it does is such an affront to the holiness of God that wrath is the natural response. God is truth, the Bible tells us. He is just, the Bible tells us. He loves justice, the Bible tells us. And so those who choose that which is an affront to him, that which is a complete offense in every possible way to his very nature, those who then choose that and reject his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness, well, they're going to fall in line, fall under his wrath as he pours it out on sin. But with that, his love requires that he does what most benefits his creation, right? God's attributes, his, his character, everything about him, they're complementary. They're not contradictory. And so, yes, God hates sin. He can't ignore it. He can't turn a blind eye. He can't be like, oh, well, it's okay. He can't, he can't do that. He has to deal with sin, but at the same time, he loves you. He loves me. He loves every single person out there that he created, that are created in the image of God that doesn't yet know him that are enslaved to sin, that say, I hate God, but at the same time, I don't believe in God, right? Which has always confused me. But God loves them so much that he gave his son to die for their sins so that the penalty would fall on Jesus. That wrathful penalty would fall on Jesus. And you know, if someone in the world today says, I I reject Christ, they're rejecting their only lifeline. They're sentencing themselves to judgment. And so when people go, how could God do that? He didn't do that. They chose that. 
Like a just judge, he has to enact the penalty for the crime. And he's done everything he could to say, let me, let me give you a way out. And yet people are still going to say, no, I don't want your way out. I refuse to believe in you. And then when he goes, okay, but judgment's going to fall. And they go, I don't care, I hate you. And then judgment falls. They have the audacity to go, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you got it. And he's like, I, I tried. I tried so many times to tell you. And so when someone says, how could a loving God judge? I respond with, how could a loving God not judge? Sin. To be truly loving, I believe, is to desire the best for others. And if God's love and his patience and his kindness and his goodness, if none of that has worked in the life of one of his creation, and judgment, letting judgment fall, is the only final thing that might bring back a sinner, a sinner from the edge of eternal damnation, then of course he would let judgment fall. Of course he would let judgment fall on that person, that they would repent. That they would repent. But if not, even then his perfect justice will still be done, and it'll be right. You know, Jesus freely took the judgment of our sin on himself, freely. He did that so that his justice would be fully satisfied, right? The penalty for the crime was, was fulfilled, but he did that while being able to grant forgiveness and grace and mercy to us and receive us into his family now. That's why Jesus stepped into the place of that wrath. And now in this age of grace, we have the opportunity to not have to face the future wrath of God as he pours it out on this earth. Yes, there will be some that choose the future wrath and they choose to live through the terrible judgments of tribulation. And yes, I do believe that some will come to Jesus during that time. And some in their ignorance will go, well, I'll just wait. As soon as I see the stars falling from the heaven, then I'll believe. But if you're unwilling to believe today, what makes you think you're going to believe then? Is the opportunity there? Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. But you don't have to face that time. You can attain salvation today. Today. So my question to every, every person here and those watching online, I mean... I think there's someone out there, you know, you sense Jesus trying to get your attention this morning. And maybe it's the, the, all the earth shaking to come. Is that, is that possibly waking you up to your status before God today? You realizing I'm not saved? You realizing I, I'm not his child? You realizing that I don't have a relationship with God, a saving relationship? Do you see the seriousness of sin? And what will happen when God's time of, of patience runs out? It's going to be horrible. Do you see what will happen to those who reject the offer of salvation that Jesus offers today? The truth is, is you can be forgiven today for all your sin. You can be saved today, now in this age of grace, before judgment falls. I believe he is speaking to you, and so I just ask, please listen. Respond to him now. Let's pray. Father, God, we trust you. God, as we look to these future events and, and try and interpret what they could mean, God, again, we know there's, we see through a glass darkly. But God, we know you're coming back. We know there's a time of judgment coming on the earth. We know there's a time when you're just going to be done. And you'll have to start pouring out your, your justice. 
the judgment on sin. And even in that, Lord, I believe you're doing that with an eye to anyone who would call out to you and that process would be saved. But God, today we have an opportunity for salvation. To not have to wait until the literal creation around us is being shaken up and torn apart. Lord, to to get saved in this age of grace. And yes, it's getting worse, and yes, it's getting darker, Lord, but today is nothing like it's going to be then, God. But Lord, I pray that the picture of your wrath on sin would, would be a motivator to someone hanging on, that they would realize how seriously you take sin, God, and that they need salvation today. And so while we're praying with eyes closed and head, heads bowed, I want to give you an opportunity here in this room to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to step into that saving relationship, to avoid the wrath of God that is to come on sin, but to be washed clean of your sin instead, forgiven, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit of promise, enabled to live a life that glorifies God, that has meaning that goes beyond this earth and this time because this earth will end. And so if you're in this room or if you're watching online and God has been speaking to your heart and you need to receive him this morning, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated and say, yeah, I want to receive Jesus Christ this morning. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you too. Anybody else in this room? God is speaking to you this morning. He's been speaking to your heart all morning about how much he loves you and wants to save you from the effect of the sin that enslaves you. And the Bible says all you gotta do is call out to him. Put your faith in him. You will be saved. And so anybody else in this room, just raise your hand where I could see it. I'm gonna pray with you in a moment to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God bless you. If you're online watching us, obviously I can't see you, but just let us know in chat. Say, I would like to receive Jesus Christ today and pray with me in a moment here. Anybody else as we're just closing? All right. Those of you that raised your hand, even if you didn't, or if you're online and I can't see you, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Father God, I believe you're God. I believe you came to this earth and you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you paid the penalty for my wrongdoing. And I thank you for that. And in that I receive the free gift of salvation to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come on sin in the future and to be saved from the effects of sin now. Thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for saving my soul. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit that I would be empowered and enabled to go out and to tell people about you. To share with them the salvation that is available to them. And to warn them of the judgment to come for those who deny you. I give my life to you in every way. Teach me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.